Hi, I'm Ann DeLisi. Welcome to episode 17 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with guitarist, songwriter, and singer Billy Davis, who worked with Mr. Excitement Jackie Wilson. He was a member of Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. And in this segment, he recounts his first meeting with a young, ambitious guitarist named Jimi Hendrix. In 2018, Billy Davis and I sat down when he was releasing his self-titled solo acoustic album at the age of 80. You had never recorded a solo release, basically, like this? Never. And always been with a rhythm section, with a band. Yeah, it's a, you feel a little naked out there, right? Yeah, sure did. It was, it was something something I hadn't did, but I was willing to try it, you know. Yeah, but your history and all the years that you've played would certainly lead us to believe that you could do exactly what you did, which is put together a wonderful collection of songs. It's so well done. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it, it, it was just what the songs. The, well, the songs it took years in all in all order me for to do to get those songs. You know, because I write by you know real life experience and stuff like that, and that's so I live those songs. It, it, it just and I just come up with them. I I live with just telling them about myself. I really write when I really have something to say, like an experience. I've experienced something. You know. I never will forget back in uh back in the day when uh way back in the in the sixties uh I never will forget my Sam Cook who was one of my best friends and that I ever had he 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 used to say you know in order to write a write a good song look at what's going on in the world today look what people are saying and thinking you know and that's uh I found that to be very true Hank Ballard he was the same way I worked with him for thirty years altogether. Basically, the same same concept. Billy, I wanted to talk to you about your history and some of the people that you worked with because you were part of the fabric of a lot of these musicians' worlds, and as a guitarist, such an integral part of working with them. But you spent most of your time on a con- more consistent basis with Hank Ballard. Right. Talk about why Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. Why did that band work? Well, it it worked for me. I loved it. I worked with a lot of people, but I felt more comfortable with it. Well, it was Hank Ballard and myself. We had a lot in common. We were both we both were uh, country guys from the. He's from Alabama. I'm from Mississippi, and uh, we grew up liking the same kind of music. He liked the country music. So did I. He, I liked blues. He did too. So, so I think that's what really uh, made the our working together and come up with so many good songs is because of that, you know. Because when I come along, uh, he discovered I like the country music just like he did. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to some of the biggest records we did, they got a country feel to them. The let's go, let's go, let's go. Finger popping time, you know, all this. It's When you hear the music that you recorded with Hank Ballard, what do you think when you hear back to some of those songs, especially the big ones? Ooh, I, I think like, <laughs> oh, is that me? That's me, really funny. <laughs> it's uh, it was it was the it was the greatest part of my life, really. When I got with him, you know, and and we had so much in common musically, you know, and that's why I was with him at least thirty years all together. Let's talk about Jackie Wilson. Uh, when you met him and what he was like. Well, when I when what what he, uh, the way I coming to really know him because he was born in uh in Detroit 
but his family were from Mississippi. My mother knew his mother from uh, from while they were living there, and I didn't meet Jackie until he was until I was like about thirteen, fourteen years old, because we moved to Detroit. But his family was already here, and uh, I never will forget he was. Uh, you could it was just something about him. He was uh, he was he was way way ahead of his time, and he always he knew I was wanted to play guitar, and he. He told me, he said, well, you learn the guy to play guitar. I said, I'm going I'm to sing, and one day you'll be playing, you can play for me. I said, okay, you know. So uh, I started playing guitar when I was 16 years of age. And in uh, 1957, he recorded a song written by Barry Gordy called uh, Reet Petit. Barry Gordy was the best writer for him than anybody. <laughs> And uh, he was looking for me and at the time to, uh, to go on the road with him. And he couldn't find me because at that time I was very wild. I was a young guy in, the t- in my teens and I just went girl, girl crazy, you know. And he, <laughs> he'd come by looking for me. Couldn't find. Then i go by his house. I couldn't find him. Then before you knew it, Hank Ballard come through town looking for a guitar player, so I left with him. But I went, I stopped, went back with Jackie in the, in the, in the mid-60s, so. Not only did Billy Davis work with Hank Ballard and Jackie Wilson, his guitar playing style and use of the wah-wah was rejected by Barry Gordy, but a young Jimi Hendrix was watching Billy Davis's unconventional guitar playing. Here he is talking about Jimi Hendrix. Well, we were playing at the Eagle Auditorium. At that time, the Eagle Auditorium in Seattle was the main spot for all the rock and roll, rhythm and blues groups, that's where they become the eager that with the place. So we were there and we took an intermission, they had an intermission and they divided, had a divided back section where they had this special people could come to stay there for the next show. And we was in the back and uh, my trumpet player that played with with, uh, with Hank Ballard in the Midnight, his name was Pat Patterson, he walked up front and he came back a little while later, he said, he said, Billy, man, he says, uh, the guy want to meet the guitar players, you know, so the guy out here, I said, man, I, I said, I don't want to meet no guy. I said, look at all these pretty women back here. I'm, I'm back here trying to find me a lady, you know. Then he came back not too long after that. He said, man, this guy, every time he see me, man, come and say something to him. He, he want to meet you, you know. I said, I said, man, what I tell you? I don't have time for no guy. I'm, I'm trying to find me a girlfriend for the night. And he, he left again, and the third time he came back, he was cursing. He was, I, I can't use the language that he would use. Man, come and say something to this. Um, man, he getting on my nerves. I'm sick of this, you know. I said, okay, calm down, calm down. I'll meet him, you know. So, so he told me, come on. We walked up front, opened the door, and there's saying this kid there, and all of a sudden he, I walked face-to-face with him. He big smile on his face, and I just, you know, reached out, shook his hand, and introduced him and, and told him he told me who he were and he wanted to wanted to meet me you know and I said okay come on in you know I got a very good feeling with him at the you know very warm he was a very warm person and I invited him in and uh, the next thing he knew he wanted me to show him about what would I do how did you do this and you know and uh, at the time we had a record out called uh, Look at Little Sister where I had did a, a double solo in fact, in R&B, that's the first time that a double guitar player had a double solo in, in, a, in a record like that. 
and he had, and he was asking me, "What did you use? How, how did you sound like you was doing? A, sound like you was playing a violin in certain spots?" I said, "No, no, and this get talking about how did you get that sound? It was so common to me what I had did. I didn't think too much about it, you know. And uh, that's what started our friendship. And I, and uh, and we was in the in the area for about at least about ten, twelve days. And uh, he invited me over to meet his meet his dad and to bring my Stratocaster guitar over to the house, which I did and. And we, we, that's where our friendship started, you know. And about two years later, I got drafted into the Army, and he had got out on a discharge. He went into the um, Army. He, he joined when he was 17, and I was uh, about 22 when I got drafted. So I asked Hank Ballard, I said, man, why don't you get a kid a break? Let him uh, see. I'm going, I'm going to be gone for at least two years. So, so they did, Hank did try him out. When you spent time with him and watched him play, did you have any idea that he would become the incredible guitarist that he became? No, no. I tell you the truth, I did. only thing that impressed me was his determination. Because when I would show him something, he had to perfect it. He would just sit up and do the same thing for hours, hours, and he, he never stopped doing that. Things I would show him, he would sit up and just, he wanted to be perfect, you know. That's the only thing that impressed me was his determination. Not his ability to play back then. Right. When you watched him later, when he became the legendary Jimi Hendrix, did you see any of what you taught him in his playing oh, at yeah. that time? Oh, yeah. Like yeah. what? Yeah, everybody saw it. The people, the people <laughs> that was at that time, you know, Sam Cooke, Hank Ballard, everybody used to talk about that. Because I was doing stuff I was doing like a— I was doing flips and all that stuff, playing guitar behind my head, biting the strings, putting it between my legs, and even laying on the floor, like uh, pretending I'm having a relationship with my guitar, you know. Right. <laughs> so so I, I used to see all of that, and it was it was amusing, you know, kind of, you know, I would just smile about it. You know. So he saw you do all of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, incorporated that into his own style. He perfected it. He went to, and I tell people to this very day, because see, if what I was trying to do, let's say, say with Barry, he tried it with other companies also. If he had a stayed in the United States and not went to England, he wouldn't have never made it, because nobody could hear what they, what they wouldn't, they didn't want to promote anything like that. When he went to England, that was his break. If he'd have stayed here, because he'd been trying to do something, but it, then nobody want to hear it. When he went to England and got famous over there, he was accepted back here. If he'd have stayed here, he wouldn't have made it. Did you like him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, him, we remained friends up until he died. Did you have any indication that he would have passed at that early age? No, but he did. He did because uh, him and I used to, in the last two years of his life, we were together constantly. And uh, I used to look, I would... A lot of time I didn't say nothing, but he would drop me off sometime. He'd all pick me up, and me and him would just ride around a limo for hours. Just no special plea to tell the driver, just go anywhere. We, we, we sit in the back seat talking and doing, you know. I, I saw something in him that I, didn't, hadn't, I had never known saw before. He was not happy. Something was wrong, and I'm just saying, how can this kid, I say, he the number one guitar player in the world, he could go to any store and buy anything he want, but he looked so unhappy, you know. And I couldn't understand that. And uh, that used to, that used to puzzle me a lot. Then I asked his uh, girlfriend, which uh, she's go by the uh, name is uh, Faye Pridgen. That was the name she was going by then, but she's going by the name of Lithophane Pridgen now. 
And uh, I asked her one time, I said, Fane, did uh, Jimmy ever tell you that uh, he was gonna, didn't, wasn't going to live long? She said, he didn't tell you that? I said, no. She said, she said, well, he used to tell me that all the time. She said, why are you asked? I said, well, I could just see it. And when it happened, you know, I, was, I wasn't really too surprised. Did he love to talk about music? That's all he wanted to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he wanted to talk about was music. That would have been 100% of it on his mind, seemed like. That's Detroit guitarist Billy Davis talking about his friendship with Jimi Hendrix. When Billy Davis was in our studio talking about his new collection of songs, he performed a couple of songs, including this Robert Johnson classic. I feel like going to the crossroads With my soul in my hand With my soul in my hand Send my soul to the devil for The first year I was with Hank Ballard, we was working on the show in, uh, we were booked on the show, in, and with, he was on the show in uh, South Carolina. And uh, he was on stage, had a group called the Famous Flames. And the other entertainers were standing in the sidelines looking, laughing at him because he had some suits. This sleeve on the coat was green. This sleeve on this coat was yellow. The pants, one side green, one yellow. You know, it did look funny, you know, but uh, people, but all the entertainers were laughing at him. But I could see something. I said, God, dog, they, they laughing at this guy, but he's something, it's something about him, you know. And after me and him start hanging out and talking together, you know, he tried to get me to start playing with him. Oh, man, leave Hank Ballard. I'm, I'm going to be this. I said, oh, I said, James, I said, I can't do that. I said, man, Hank Ballard is way bigger than you. Yeah, but but he said, but I'm going to be bigger than Hank Ballard. I'm going to be bigger than Jackie Wilson. I'm going to be bigger than Sam Cooke. I'm going to have the biggest band out here. I thought he was nuts. But he did all that. He 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 did do that. I couldn't believe it, you know, because he just he just came. He was just determined that he was gonna have to be the number one artist in the world. And he accomplished it. You were surrounded by people like that. Jimi Hendrix had the same determination yeah. that James Brown did. Uh, did you ever get to perform with James Brown? No, no, never did. But you guys we were don't, on show friends. With, oh, yeah, we were very good friends. We, we'd hang out. But he, uh, he tried to get me to play with him, but I wouldn't do it for the simple reason. I told him, I said, James, I said, I love what you did, have done, man. You have, became, you have become the biggest artist out there. But I said, I, I don't have nothing against that. But I said, your rules and regulations, I knew I couldn't follow them. But I said, I don't knock you because I said, you are successful. It works. But I said, I knew I couldn't do that because I said, you're too strict. And I knew I would mess up and we'd lose our friendship, you know. So I said, it's best for that I would never work for you because... You know, I knew I couldn't live up to your standards because at the time I was drinking liquor 24 hours a day almost. Okay. And, I knew he, and I knew he wouldn't have put up with that. Well, did he understand that? Yeah, he did. And we still remained friends up until he, until he he's passing. When he started to become James Brown and people were buying his records, people knew who he was, did you realize that James Brown was changing the trajectory of music, that he would influence music to come after him? Sure did. Did he know and, that? And, oh, yeah, he knew it. And I could have been a part, but like I said, I wouldn't do it for the simple reason I valued his friendship. 
your friendship meant more to me, and I'd have stopped working with him. I knew it wouldn't have worked mm-hmm. because being for, working for him, it just, you, he wanted you. You were at his disposal 24 hours a day. See, with Hank Ballard, Jackie Wilson, all the people, we do the show. I go do what I want to do. But with James Brown, he had to know where you are. You had to be at his disposal. If he wanted to call you at 4 o'clock in the morning to rehearse or anything, if he called you and you are not there, then you're in trouble. Was there a lot of turnover? Did people come and go a lot? Or did his band stay with him pretty much for years under those kind of strict guidelines? Yeah, some of them did. Some of them couldn't couldn't uh, couldn't do it. But like Fred Wesley, guys like that. Uh, uh, that other guy that stuck stuck. They had bigger positions, you know. But it's like some of the other horn players and stuff like that that wouldn't really uh, that he that he could easily get get he could easily get the best musicians out there. Mm-hmm. So therefore, he didn't he didn't ever worry about that. I assume you were privy to or sat in and watched some of the rehearsals that they did. Can you describe what a James Brown rehearsal looked like? Well, it was like, it was, it was, it was like, it, it, it remind, when I went in the military, it remi- reminds me like he was in the military because of he, he had, he, he, the police, you had to call him Mr. Brown. And uh, he learned from a lot of uh, people to this, like, uh, now he got that from Billy Ward and the Dominoes. Billy Ward started that. You got to have call him Mr. Ward. You can't call him uh, Billy Ward. You know, James Brown, same thing, Mr. Brown. <laughs> so, he he did, that, and that's what if you work for him, that's what you had to do. Were these long rehearsals? Oh yeah. Were they grueling? Yeah. And but one thing I really uh, I, I, I really just like not the, the sound. I really like to give credit to the. Uh, the first time I heard what became the James Brown sound was a guitar player he had, Jimmy Nolan, because he was playing ninth chords, stuff like that. We had never heard nobody playing that in, in, in popular music. And uh, that's where the James Brown sound came from. But Jimmy Nolan, sad to say, he never really got credit for it. He should have, but he didn't. Is there a piece of James Brown music in particular that you liked my favorite of all time was about him was a song called uh, There Was a Time. I, I love that song. There was a day. There was a time. Coming up next, Billy Davis talks about moving to Detroit as a kid, working with Jackie Wilson, and one of his biggest influences, John Lee Hooker, and meeting him for the very first time. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you, just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. I'm Andalisi, and here's the conclusion of my conversation with Billy Davis. Is there a particular time in music history that you enjoyed more than any other? Ooh, that was that was that was with Hank Ballard. I enjoyed that more than I did anybody. You enjoyed that music, or just him? Uh, the music and him, mm-hmm. because we became the first group in the history of music to have three three records in the top. All at that 
simultaneously they all at all at the same time. The twist, finger popping time and let's go, let's go, let's go. Now other groups did it after that, but we were the first to do it. When Chubby Checker uh did his version of the twist and it became a huge hit. What did you think when you heard that version? It was weird because we was on our way to Florida. We was on the way to Miami. And, you know, you riding, we done been riding all night, so you kind of sleeping, sleeping in, 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 the, in, the, in the car. It, I wakes up, and he just, you know, come on, baby, do the... I wake up and listen. I said, "Wait a minute, something. Who is it? We didn't. We 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 had never heard of Chubby Checker. But we woke up. Then some of the other guys, they woke up. and They were listening too. We just had our ears glued on the radio to see who who is this, you know. Then when the record played, they said Chubby Checker. We said, "Damn, who is Chubby? who is this guy, man? We uh, we found out who he was you know, shortly afterward, but." During that time, we were just we just uh, we thought of almost like we was hearing things, you know, because we had never heard of it and didn't know they had been recorded. It and it was huge. Oh yeah, the biggest thing ever been in records. It was a, a huge hit. I would never forget, we was scheduled to do the American Bandstand show. We was at we was at the at the Royal Peacock in uh Atlanta, Georgia. We were there for for a week. And uh, we flew up to Philadelphia to do the American Bandstand. And we was in the dressing room just like here, down this hallway a little further. Hank Ballard was in the and had his own dressing room. And Dick Clark and him was in there, and all of a sudden we heard some profanity going on, and we we didn't know what 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 was wrong, you know. But then Hank Ballard came back to the dressing room where we were at. Man, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's get. We going back to Atlanta, you know. We said, man, we ain't gonna do the show. No, we ain't gonna do the show. We we getting ready to go back in. And see, we flew up there in our uniform because we was gonna do the show and go and go and, and go right back to Atlanta. But we don't know what happened. We never did find out why, what happened. But the next year, that's when the twist came out. Now, what happened between him and Dick Clark? He never told us. We don't. We don't know. But something went. Something happened. It's a mystery. Yeah, we we never asked him. You know, about him being the boss. We didn't. We just we just did our job and kept our mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk, go back to earlier in your life when you arrived in Detroit. What was your life like when you got here? I thought I was in paradise. I thought I was in paradise to come from Mississippi, come out of the cotton fields and start, you know, living in the in the big city with the big skyscrapers and light, lighted streets. I was, I, I was just, I was like I was in another world. I loved it. I was 13 when I came to Detroit. And so life changed for you here. Good. Yeah, 100%. And you started going to school here, right? Yeah. Started going to school at uh, Duffield Elementary. 
And were you playing the guitar yet, or is this when you started to play when you got to Detroit? No, I hadn't played then. I wanted to, but I didn't have I didn't have access to a guitar, either knowing anyone that could play one. But by the time I was uh, 16, I was uh, going home one day, and I, there was a guy sitting on the porch playing a get the electric guitar. He was blind, and I used to stop and just listen at him, and uh, I would just stop and quietly sit, you know. This went on for maybe three or four weeks or a month. And uh, one day I did stop by to get my usual ear for listening. And he said, he said, well, he said, you don't, he said, you don't never say nothing. You, uh, he said, uh, he said, what's your name? You know, I kind of got quieter then. Cause how did this guy know I'm here? You know, but he knew he could feel that I was there. And I told him, I said, I want to, you know, I said, I've been watching you. I would love to see if I could, you could teach me how to play like you, you know, he said. He said, well, I don't. He said, I'll do the best I can. I'll show you what I know. So every day I was there on his on his porch or inside his house, you know, listening at him play the guitar. And I borrowed a guitar from my, I had a cousin of mine, had a guitar, and he used to let me use it. So that's how I got my first start. I'd be there every day watching this guy, even though he was blind, but see, he would be playing. I would just sit there and look at what he was doing. And I had my guitar in my hand trying to imitate what he was doing. You know? And I eventually start, start learning. And uh, about four, a little over four years later, I was with Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. Did you meet John Lee Hooker during that time too? Oh, he was the first entertainer I ever known in my life. My cousin, uh, his name was Melvin Rucker. He uh, he told me that John Lee Hooker was a friend of his. I didn't believe him. I said, "Oh man, you ain't, you don't know no John Lee Hooker." Oh yeah, he, he, I I never believed that one day he came by and picked me up. He said, "I'm gonna take you to John Lee Hooker's house to show you I know him." You know, so and, and that's what he did. John Lee was living on uh, Pierce and uh, near St. Albans. Went over to his house and I was just sitting there. I couldn't say nothing but just sit there looking. I said, "Who is this, John Lee?" <laughs> I couldn't believe. It. <laughs> couldn't believe it. Come on, Lord, come on and see by me. Cause I'm with. What was he like? Real quiet. Real quiet. Real. He's a. It, it, but the most impressive thing about him, the last time I saw him was at the Sacramento Blues Festival in 1987. He was the same person he was when I first met him. He didn't. He he was and he was a millionaire at this time. But when I met him, he didn't. He didn't. He was. He was. He was. He didn't have nothing. But he still was. The, he still. I couldn't see any difference in him. He was the same. Had the same personality. So fame didn't affect him at all? Not at all. Were you a fan of how he played? Oh, yeah, I were. B.B. King, I was a fan of his, too. But he the one told me, because I used to tell, I was telling him how, how great he was and what I thought about him and all that. He said, but no, he said, he said that you got the wrong idea. He said, get your own style. Don't try to play like me. He said, play like you. I never forgot that, and that's exactly what I did. It's pretty incredible what a long life B.B. King had, and it seems like he played and was on the road his entire life. Yeah, he, he basically, he were. Because the last time I saw him, he was at the Fox Theater, and because uh, we hadn't saw each other in a while, quite a while. 
And he told me, he said, he said, I'm going to give you my, he said, we need to change numbers because, uh, you know, ain't many of us left, you know. He said, uh, he said, most of us are gone, you know. I said, yeah, you're right. He said, he said, we need to change numbers so we can keep in touch. But he said, I'm going to give you my number. And he said, I'm gonna get you. But he said, you can't find me at home because I ain't going to be there. I'll be on the bus. I said, That's right. <laughs> He said, you ain't going to catch me at home. He said, I'm tired of sitting up watching them old Western movies. I done seen all of them. He said, I'm tired of doing that, so I'll be right here on this bus. <laughs> and that's what he did. Billy, can you talk about um, the Black Bottom neighborhood? Um, you know, those of us who never were around to see it, you know, we read about it and hear about it. And this was part of your history and part of your life when you were a, a young man and a boy. And I wanted you to talk about what that part of Detroit felt like and what you remember about it. Oh, it was the most beautiful. I can see why they call it a paradise valley because that's exactly just what it, the way you felt. It had a, it was just, it was just beautiful. I mean, people had, a, you know, I mean, I remember we lived in on uh, at 2226 Maple Street between Shane and Dubois. And uh, every night, we didn't have fans or nothing like that. My mother let the, let the windows up, open the front doors, go to sleep, go to nobody, you know, and didn't worry about that. You know, nobody bothered you. know, it was, it was just because most people had jobs. They were work, working good. Most people in my, my family started out working at the Ford Motor Company and uh, doing uh, construction and wrecking houses and stuff like that. It was just beautiful. Kids had a, it, it was just totally different than what it is now. There was such a music um, scene there, and it was such a vibrant place. Talk about that. Yeah, that's where I first got to start hearing, hearing people like... Uh, at, at that time, Detroit had a lot of blues artists too. That they were they had a uh, little George Jackson. He was on get um, uh, Baby Boy Warren, people like that. And Hooker Hooker was a local, just a local guitar player at the time. And they had vocal groups was dominant also coming across because you had the groups like Stanley Mitchell and the Tornadoes. A lot of groups that was around, and some of them never made it big, but some you know few few did. The Warfield Theater, that's where most of the groups got together and have, uh, you know, for, for amateur competition, you know, Jackie Wilson, Little Willie John, you know, they all, Smokey Robinson, all of them went to the Warfield Theater trying to win, <laughs> win come in first place. And it was, I was there right with them because I, would be, I was there with the guitar and uh, they'd be, yeah, well, you want to play for me, you know, play for me, you know. And it was, it was, it was beautiful. What an exciting time! Oh yeah, it was. I just wish wish kids, uh, younger kids today, could 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 see how that were, and uh, and the music business have changed so much, you know, and it's it's it ain't nothing, nothing like it used to be. A lot of us romanticize, you know, what life was like then, but you know, the way you describe it, it it's worth romanticizing. But it seems like when you when you hear interviews of people who were making music, that they were just surrounded by so many people making music. So many people were playing instruments or singing. Did you feel like music played a bigger part in the lives of young people then in terms of playing or singing? Oh, yeah, because uh, 
every day of the week. You could, you, you could, you, before you go to bed at night, you'd hear guys standing on the corner singing harmonies, singing, you know, sing, singing, you know, it was, this didn't this happen every day? They'd be up singing the hit records they done heard on the radio. They'd be up, up imitating them, singing on, you know, and, and a lot of a lot of people. That's where they got their start at. You know, the Temptations did the same thing. They stood around the street corners, them making harmony and singing. You know, it was it was just. But you don't see that anymore. When you would hear some of these groups like the Temptations, did you think to yourself that they would be famous one day? Or were there just so many people making music and sounding good, it was hard to tell who um, would get a big break? Right, it, it were. You're right. You, you just, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't really tell. The only one uh, that stood out, well, there were two that really stood out above all the other vocals, Jackie Wilson and Little Willie John. They were in a class all by themselves. Uh Talk about Little Willie John a little bit. Did you know him? Oh yeah, I know him very well. Uh, he was a uh, he was like a he was like a little bad kid. Even when he got old, he was just he he was just he had he, he had that personality. He was like like he was but he was the little bad boy on the block that you love. <laughs> you loved him, but you know he was bad. <laughs> so, but you loved him anyway. You know that's that's the kind of effect he had on people. He just he just. He was just a likable person. And I'm sure when he opened his mouth to sing, you'd forget you oh. forget it all. Oh, yeah. He had that voice, and he knew it, too. And he was a little guy, but he but they had a big voice. When you touch my hand and talk sweet talk, I got a knocking in my knees and a wobble in my walk. I'm trembling and I'm shaking. My heart stops though and just think about us dancing. I'm patting and I'm shaking. Jackie Wilson would the same way. Jackie Wilson, uh, he used to work at Ford Motor Company. He got fired because he be he get to singing on the line out there working, and the people be stopping a little, little wishing at him. <laughs> so they fired him. You can't work here. <laughs> amazing that you were able to watch so many careers start. Like you knew so many of these people before the rest of the world knew who they were. Your experiences with these artists, it sounds like it happened yesterday. It seemed like it was all a dream. You know, I said, no, did, I, did this really happen? Did I know this guy? Did I? It seemed like it was a big play was going on. You know, it was mm-hmm. a, a play and now it's over. You know, you... What do you think about music that you hear being made today, Billy? Well, be honest with you, I'm glad I come along at the time I did because uh, a lot of it, it's especially the derogatory stuff. I just, I'm, I'm glad I came along because what inspired me to want to get into music was totally different than what the kids got to be inspired by today. What inspired you? I heard the simplicity, John Lee Hooker, 
Muddy Waters, people like that. Uh, Arthur Big Boy Crudup. That's uh, I would, and these people were just singing about life, what was what you know, what they experienced in their life, you know, and about love and stuff like that. And that's 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 what inspired me. Mm-hmm. The first record when I heard uh, Arthur Big Boy Crudup singing, uh, "That's all right now, Mama. That's all right for you." Ugh, that melody just, just couldn't get out of my head. Just stuck there. And I just say, I, I, I was riding with my mother in a taxi cab, and we heard that. And then I knew that's what I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to be a guitar player. Well, now that's all right, now, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, now, Mama. Any way you do, but that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, now, Mama. Do you ever hear songs with your guitar playing on it? And you have to remind yourself that it was you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that happens constantly, you know. And sometimes some of the stuff I don't forget because I recorded so much stuff with Hank Ballard. Sometimes I can uh, I, I, I be running up YouTube, but just like just recently I found stuff. I said, Oh no, that's me. I had to forget about that one, you know. <laughs> Did you play the guitar solo on Higher and Higher? Playing rhythm guitar. You were playing rhythm yeah. guitar on that. Yeah, me, James Jameson, Ural Jones, Robert White, and Joe Hunter. It's such an amazing song still. But do you know what happened with that song? They sent it in on a demo. So we were sitting in uh, Jackie Wilson's uh, manager's office. They listened at the demo, you know, to see if there was anything they wanted to record. Listened at that demo and uh, took it. Trash can over there. I took it off. Jackie Wilson went and got it out of the trash can. He said, "Y'all can't hear this, man." He said, "This this record, I can, I can hear what you know." Oh man, that ain't nothing, you know. You know that was the last big hit he had. Million seller threw in the trash can and would have stayed there unless he had to went and got it. And we came right here to Detroit, Michigan, and when got with and 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 called up uh, the Funk Brothers there up, and we went and did it at United Sound. And he took the master to Chicago, where his uh, uh, producer was over there, Carl Davis. He was a producer for Brunswick Records at that time. He took it over there and released it. That was the last big hit he had. It was a million seller. Recall what the session was like when it was recorded. James Jameson, before you could sing a whole verse, he'd tell you to go to the next one. He he knew what you was going to play before you even played it. <laughs> he was the bass player. He the one made people start listening to to, to the bass. So when, when, when that was really really elementary, because Jackie could hear the because uh, high and high he he could hear like the little gospel sound to it, you know, you know. He, and and it became a big, the last big hit he had. Talk a little bit more about James Jamerson. A friend of mine said he is the best bass player that ever lived. Yeah, he was. He was. Like I said, this guy, and see, you know, he and a lot of people don't know, he started out playing basic gut bucket blues with 
Washboard Willie. If you ever heard of Washboard Willie, but well, that's mm-hmm. who that's who started James James started playing Washboard Willie and his super subtle rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's where he got it started. But he was like I said, this guy when he was he was uh. I never will forget, I came to, uh, I was with A&M Records at the time. I came to Detroit to do a show. At, uh, I had a book for 10 days at uh, the High Chaparral in Detroit on, uh, on Gratiot. And I got James Jameson, Earl Van Dyke, Robert White, Benny Benjamin was on drums. So they was backing me up. So I took all my records and had a record play and all that. So James I'd start playing it. He said, "He said, go to." He said, "Okay, go to the next one." I played just about less than a minute of each one. He he said, "That's it." I said, "But man, you didn't get the rest." He said, "That's it." He had it just like that. That that's just what, and how he did that, I've never knew. I've never seen anyone do it like do that. He's he, brilliant. And he knew exactly what to put on it. You didn't have to tell him what to do. He he knew exactly what to do. You didn't have to tell him nothing. Yeah, but he was one of the greatest. He, he wasn't one of the. He was the greatest. Billy, during your time of being a guitarist, a guitar player, were there any times that you surprised yourself when you played something or when you heard it back and you thought, wow, I surprised myself by how well I played that? Not really. It's like when I did the solo and look at Little Sister, I didn't, I didn't think that, I didn't think too much of it because it, I had been doing that kind of stuff all the time. But then, uh, then uh, when I saw these kids, college students, chartered a bus to come up to see me play it in person. They said, what What was you using on the guitar? I said, I didn't know what they were talking about. Because at that time, they didn't, I didn't, they didn't, I didn't, I didn't know, there were no known sound effects for the guitar, you know, like pedals and all that. So they, they wasn't, and they said, well, we just, we just were trying to figure out how you get that, what you did, and uh, and how you get that, you know. And I'm trying to think, I said, what are these guys talking about? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what they were talking about. Because what I've done, I did it, it was just natural, you know, you know, I did it all the time. It's like sometimes Barry playing something for him, he'd take his hands and put up to his ears sometimes. Man, stop it, stop it, stop it. I can't, I can't <laughs> so so that's one reason I never recorded for Motown because I had I was doing stuff that uh, he just couldn't hear it and and I could understand it because years later, just like just like with the Wawa pills, when they started doing that stuff, I, I was a pioneer in that. But when I did it, nobody else was doing it. And some years later, every time you look around, you hear a record with a wobble on it. Chef and all this have got, you know. The Dennis Coffey used right, it. Right, right. And all but, those Temptations but when I was, records. But when I was trying to get people to listen to that, they didn't want to hear it. How did you discover the Wawa? Fender, it, when I went, when I started uh, playing with Hank Ballard, Hank Ballard took me to the Fender factory in Fullerton, California. They gave me... A Fender guitar, brand new Fender guitar, and an amplifier. I didn't have to pay a dime for it. They gave it to me. So when they invented a Fender Fuzz Wah pedal, they sent me one of those too. I got signed up with Willie Mitchell, 
in Memphis, Tennessee. I say, Willie. I say, man, I got a pedal. I say, I want to record it with it, you know. No, 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 we can't use that. I said, why? He said, that's not the Memphis sound. Said, we sticking with the Memphis sound. He said, we can't, can't let you use it, you know. I said, I, would really, I really felt bad about it. I said, okay. I took it to B.B. King. B.B. King was playing at the uh, Village Gate in the village in New York City. I took it there. I said, B.B., he said, hey, what is that, man? I said, try it out, man. This is going to be the thing, you know. And he said, I don't know what that is. I'm scared to try it. I don't say, this is my first time at the Village Gate. I don't want to experiment with nothing, you know. So, okay. So so then, like I said, a few years later, then everybody started using the wall wall pedal. And everyone was afraid of it at first. Right. Then that's that's why I quit doing it, because I didn't never wanted to be like everybody else. And I wanted to wanted to be a pioneer. That's why I, that's why I took it to High Records. Willie Mitchell was the you know he the one produced all of Al Green's big hits. Willie Mitchell, but he couldn't. He said no, that's not the Memphis sound. We can't use it. And then look what happened. Yeah, Every, <laughs> everybody. Isaac Hayes did it, <laughs> and some of everybody was using it. <laughs> My thanks to Billy Davis for sharing some truly captivating stories. The Essential Conversation series is a production of Detroit's public radio station, WDET, and is supported by ELS Studio 3D. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Andalisi. Thanks so much for listening. 